We'll go to Exodus chapter 34, excuse me, chapter 40, and I'm going to start reading with verse 34. And I want to teach tonight about the dwelling place, about learning to live with God. We'll look at the tabernacle, make some analogies uh, to our lives from the tabernacle, but in Exodus 40, verse 34, Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. When the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud were not taken up, then they journeyed not till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Would not have been a sight to behold, to see that in the daytime, and then to see the fire of God resting on that place at night. Oh, my goodness, that would have been amazing. But let's pray. Father, as we... Take time to look into this word. We want you to speak to all of our hearts. We are grateful that you're a God that dwells among us and within us. And Lord, when we think about the house, which certainly is a pattern of the kingdom of God and the ministry of your son, we can't help but be grateful. Thank you for bringing us all through another Thanksgiving holiday. And we're glad to be back in fellowship again. So, Help us to speak clearly. Help us to uh, clarify anything that is complex. And I pray you give everybody ears to hear. Let your spirit fall in this place in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We, we know the children of Israel, of course, had a covenant with the Lord. They were redeemed by the Lord. And having come out of Egypt with miracles... This mass of people needed to be governed and guided. And one of the first things that God did for them was told them to establish a house. So when you read the second half of the book of Exodus, it tells you about how Moses received in a vision the pattern from God regarding what the house of God was supposed to look like. The reason that is interesting to us is because the people had to build what it was that Moses saw. Now for us as believers then, we need to know it's, it's not our role to design any of God's plans, but simply to follow the ones that he reveals. And God's plan for your life and for my life differs, but there are a lot of things that come together that, that, that unify us. But you have to understand that God's plan for your life is different and what somebody else may think about uh, regarding the circumstances of your life, the direction of your life. Nobody knows where you're going but God. And then he, he, he reveals a little of that to you. And that's why the Bible says we live and we walk and we go from faith to faith and from glory to glory. If I try to impose upon you a vision for my personal life, then that becomes a snare for you. As a pastor, I can share what I believe God 
is leading me to do and wants me to lead a congregation to do, and everybody part of that congregation and considers me their pastor can follow along with that. But in, in terms of specifics for your individual life, you've got to be able to find the will of God for yourself in the word of God. Now this tells us in verse 34 that the cloud of the Lord was a representation of the presence of God. And the Lord had told them that whenever you see that cloud lift, that's telling you that you're to move with the cloud. So as long as the cloud was on the tabernacle by day and they saw the fire by night, all of these Israelites understood that we are to stay in this particular region. But the moment somebody looked up and they said, Moses, look, looks like the cloud is ascending a little bit and kind of going off in the distance. People had to blow the trumpet, get everybody together, let them know, get the Levites and everybody here, start tearing the tabernacle down. But imagine if they would have tore the tabernacle down, had all of the furnishing that was sacred and holy. Let's suppose the cloud went that way and they took the tabernacle and all of its implements and went the opposite direction. That, that wouldn't be good because it's, it's not enough to have the facility and the furniture if you don't have the presence. It's important to have the presence. And, and many uh, people have the facility and the furniture but don't have the presence. And it's the presence that we're after because this is what we know leads and guides us. This is what the scripture says. So look again here at verse Verse 36, when the cloud was taken up, then the children of Israel went onward in all their journeys. Now, you need to know when the cloud is lifting in your life and leading you in a different direction, taking you in a different direction, returning you to a place that maybe you left before. The, the children of Israel had priests and the priests had a breastplate. And on that breastplate, he had all these stones. Each stone represented a tribe. But he also had two stones one called Urim, another one called Thummim. One meant lights, the other meant fire. And, and if you've read Samuel, you know that there have been several times where David or one of the kings, when they wanted the will of God, they called for the priest, and the priest had to go into the presence of God with the Urim and the Thummim. And the whole point of that was to seek the will of God, to find the will of God. And once they went to the presence of God, those stones According to old ancient Jewish traditions, those stones would either radiate light or they just remain dark. So they understood that if there was some kind of flash or some kind of illumination, that that was God telling them that they're to go. And, and we live not by the presence of physical stones, but the scripture says those that are led by the spirit. They're the sons of God. So we have the inward witness of the Holy Ghost inside of us, and it is inside here that we receive that inward glow. This is how we know that we're supposed to do this. This is one of the ways we know that we're supposed to do that. And it's one of the ways in which God leads his people. Jesus went up to the mountain of transfiguration. He prayed. His disciples did what they normally do. They fell asleep. They fell asleep. Yeah, just like the Garden of Gethsemane, they, they fell asleep. And, and when they finally <clears throat> woke up, Jesus was being transfigured. They saw this glorious cloud about him. He was glowing. And then all of a sudden, then they started thinking, well, maybe we ought to build a church up here. 
or some kind of monument or something like that. But, but the whole point was, in the presence of God, that's where Jesus was transfigured. And the Bible says that Moses and Elijah appeared to him, and they spoke to him about his future. So God knows your futures like he knows mine. And there's somebody on the other side with the king that knows parts of our future also. And if the Lord lets them step from eternity over here into time to talk to you and talk to me like he did with Jesus, then that's a wonderful thing also. But Peter and James and John couldn't quite understand that. So you as a believer, when you take time to pray and you're in the presence of God, very often what you're sensing in that cloud that's the will of God for your life. The moment you come up out of that, that's usually when the devil is fighting you and all kind of unbelief comes and he's telling you to never happen. God won't do it. But yet God's in your heart telling you he can do it through you and he can do it for you. So let's let's look now to numbers. And I want to show you something over in numbers two. <clears throat> when the Lord gave Moses the plan for the tabernacle. He then told them that in their journeys, they are to put the tabernacle in the center. And you can see in Numbers chapter 2, verse 2, every man of the children of Israel is to pitch his tent by his own standard. So every tribe had their own flag, their own colors, that kind of a thing that they would fly. And says, with the ensign of their father's house, almost like, you know, certain people over in England, they have a family crest. So you can recognize this or that for some ranchers who have a brand that they put on their cattle. There's something that that makes you and your group unique and people know it. So imagine then a tabernacle in the middle of all of these people, millions of people. You got 12 tribes, four sides for the tabernacle. Three tribes on either side, all of them have some kind of flag. So if you take the time to go walking, which I doubt if too many people did because it just take too long, you would know where you're at because you'd at least be able to know which people group you're dealing with. They're all Israelites. They're all descendants of Abraham. But yet all of them are different because they come from different sons of of uh, Mr. Mr. Jacob. Now there are several things here that I want to want to highlight, and uh, that is this fact here in Numbers chapter two. Look at verse three on the east side toward the rising of the sun, and then verse ten on the south south side, <clears throat> and then also verse seventeen. Then the tabernacle of the congregation shall set forward with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camp. So again, we've got four sides, we've got 12 tribes around it, but yet between the tribes and the tabernacle, you've got the Levites, because the Levites weren't considered to be part of any of those tribes. And even when the Levites started working in the temple, and they had Solomon's temple, and certainly by Jesus' day, the Levites never received any promised land. Their inheritance was to work in the house of God. So if you were a tribe of Issachar, this particular part of the real estate in the promised land was given to your tribe. If you were of the tribe of Reuben, here's where yours were. But God told all of them that for the Levites, you're to make a way for them to dwell and settle amongst all of you. 
So they could live in pretty much anywhere they wanted in any of the tribes because their ministry was unto God. This is the reason why years ago that our churches, uh, pastors typically uh, went from parsonage to parsonage. It's one of the reasons. Churches would have a parsonage for a preacher, and the preacher, wherever he would go and stay, the minister, he'd stay in that parsonage, then he'd go to this place, then he'd go to that place. And it was a responsibility of the churches to provide for the preacher. That comes out of this particular pattern here. But, but what also happened with a lot of that in, in old times, where you'd have a preacher to give 40, 50, 60 years of their life to the ministry and come to the end of their days and they don't own anything. And this was one of the reasons that, that in modern times, people had to start being a little bit more forward thinking and, and taking care of ministers and blessing them in a, in a much, more, much more modern way. So the, the, the principle then here is the children of Israel had a tabernacle. The priest's ministry was to take care of the tabernacle. But this tabernacle was God's dwelling place. This is where he lived. This is where he dwelt, and it was a sacred space, and everybody understood that they were not to treat this as if it was just any ordinary location. Do you remember the story of Moses when he's at the burning bush? And the Lord said, take you off your shoes because this is holy ground. Well, this ground here is holier than the burning bush part because this is the tabernacle, and it belongs directly to God. There's nowhere in the Bible where God's house is to be treated as though it's just any other location. Because it's a representation of where God dwells. His glory descends. His holy people who are in covenant with him come to worship. And this is where the fire of God manifests. Now let's look at something else here. Um, I want to say this in Numbers 2 at the end. In verse 34, the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So they pitched by their standards. And so they set forward everyone after their families according to the house of their fathers. Okay, so this, this house, as we told you, being a tabernacle, being the dwelling place of God. The way this thing was made, God gave the pattern for it, the design for it, and only his plans and wishes mattered. That's, that's an important thing. Now, why is that important? Because this place was so holy that you'd never read of any Hittite singers in there. You don't ever read about any Egyptian or Assyrian priests who were in there using it to do their own liturgies and rites and ceremonies. This was specifically for God to God and for his people. And when it comes to the things of the kingdom of God, the principle has not changed. The children of Israel were the people of light. Everybody outside of Israel, outside of the covenant, were the people of darkness. What does Paul say in the New Testament? What communion does light have with darkness? What fellowship does light have with darkness? None at all. None at all. Now, after 9-1-1, some of you will remember that when the towers came down in the wake of that, all of these people were becoming very ecumenical. And they wanted to make sure that no Muslim in their region felt offended. So you had a lot of pastors 
They were opening up their pulpits and allowing Muslim preachers to come explain their faith to the congregation. And they were trading pulpits. Sometimes a Christian preacher would go into the, to the mosque. That was rare, but you see it quite often where uh, the Muslim imam would come into a Christian church. And there were even churches in California that were even taking up offerings in this time to help build mosques on the West Coast. Okay, what would any of that have to do with God? Nothing. Nothing at all. See, nothing at all. I, I think as a, as a Christian, we need to realize that what we're doing for God should not be influenced by other cultures, other deities, other beliefs. Yeah, a- absolutely. We, we should not be those kind of, kind of folks. I can recall some ecumenical meetings amongst ministers that people have had in large cities where I've gotten invitations. They'll say, well, uh, we're going to do a, a joint communion of all the uh, ministers in town. We want you to maybe be a part of it. So then here is a Jewish rabbi, and then here is somebody who's Mormon, and then here who's somebody who's involved with this other religion or something like that. And uh, whenever I've gotten an invitation like that, I just always politely decline. See? Politely decline. Uh, Years ago when that gentleman who used to be on... uh, Fox News all the time. I used to have them boards up there, be writing on there, and every commercial was selling gold. I can't remember his name now, but he, uh, Beck was his name. So he, he had a, a big deal in D.C. one time. Well, Mr. Beck is Mormon, but he had this big, huge deal in D.C., and all these preachers and folks were there, so I'm looking up on that platform, and there's, there's somebody who's got a Wiccan outfit on, you know, got the hood and everything. Then here's a Mormon elder that's up there, and then some popular evangelical preachers sitting up there. And you got Muslims and folks that are up there. And I just watched all of that confusion and just wondered why anybody that, that knows God would climb up on a platform like that to present themselves in the middle of that. But it's that kind of confusion that leads us to the point where we forget exactly what the tabernacle and the temple of God is supposed to represent. Yeah, don't, don't ever forget that. This, this thing is narrow. It's very restricted. Now, the, the tribes, of course, once they got into the promised land and everybody was living in their own territories, they developed their own styles of dress. We know they had their own different accents. Remember Peter and them came down and was standing around the fire? And they said, oh, no, I know you were with Jesus because you talk funny. You talk just like them people up there from Galilee. Yeah, so, so you can have different accents, different emphases, but they all had been redeemed the same. They all understood the word of God. So for me, as a Christian, you can see all of this patterned in how God did this with the tribes. So we have a, a body of Christ today that has many members. And God only knows how many denominations and individual movements and independent churches around planet Earth, but Wherever I go, if someone knows about the sacrifice of Christ, that's what's key. That's what's key. So it's never concerned me if somebody was free Methodist, United Methodist. Never, never, never concerned me if, if somebody was Wesleyan or African Methodist. Didn't matter to me if somebody was of the tribe of the Southern Baptist, Northern Baptist. American Baptist, Missionary Baptist, Progressive Baptist, didn't really matter. I, I wasn't concerned if, if somebody was, you know, Missouri Senate, 
Wisconsin Senate. ELCA. Then you got several independent ones that I know of, and I know of a boatload of Presbyterian ones, and don't get me started on the full gospel ones. Here's my point. Everybody's got a flag and an ensign. And people have chosen where they want to pitch their tents, and that's fine. But let's never forget that what's at the center of it all is the sacrifice of Christ. See, not other religions. God hadn't called us to try to blend other religions. But if people believe, hey, that God so loved the world, he sent his son into this world. His son was born of a virgin. He lived without sin. He died on that cross. He was raised from the dead and he ascended to heaven. And one day he's returning. I can call them brother. Doesn't matter. But 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 I also need us to know that in being church, that that God had a reason why he told the children of Israel, I don't want Moabites and Ammonites and everybody else in that tabernacle. Because he considered it a holy place. This principle that I'm giving you right now is one of the reasons why Pastor Darrell and Tiffany and all the years that we've served God, we've never got really excited about all of these uh, singers and actresses who do all their performances for the world, the flesh and the devil. And then when they come into a church, then they're celebrated like they're heroes. And I'm like, oh, no, you need to be delivered from your lifestyle first. Yeah, go, go to singing for Jesus and stop singing about adultery. And go to, go to acting and, and, and using your gifts and talents that you say come from God. Use them for the kingdom of God instead of to get the applause of the world, you see. It's this kind of mixture that we're seeing in the body of Christ today that has obscured what the present temple of God should look like. We don't know. And you watch him on television now. He'll be somebody that is uh, winning an award for something. And then the next time you see him, they're doing a duet with somebody who's a heathen, doesn't know God, but it's a crossover song. And everybody's like, oh, my goodness, this is so wonderful. Nothing wonderful about it at all. God didn't bring Hittites and Canaanites into the temple. And we shouldn't be applauding that when it happens. Because it's just one step away from leading to further and further and greater mixture. And I can show you this from the scripture. Go to 2 Kings and let's look at chapter 16. You'll find this interesting if you enjoy reading the Bible. 2 Kings 16, there's a king by the name of Ahaz. And he decides to go to the neighboring country of Syria. Second Kings 16, look at verse 10. King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and he saw an altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Urijah, that's his priest, he, he gave him the fashion of it, see, the measurement and the pattern of it, according to all the workmanship thereof. This man was just absolutely captivated by the beauty of this altar. This is the king of Israel. Verse 11, Uriah the priest, he built the altar according to all that King Ahaz sent from Damascus. Now, you know as well as I do, uh, God's priest named Uriah shouldn't have been building an altar from a heathen country in the temple precincts in the first place. Even if the king did send the dimensions. Because Uriah knew the word of God and said that this was not supposed 
to occur. But look at verse 12. And when the king was come from Damascus, the king saw the altar and the king approached the altar and offered thereon. So now the king is trying to act like the priest and he's using the pagan altar as if it's a holy thing. This is what we see very often with 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 Christians. They go here, they go there, they see something, then they think, man, why can't we do that or have that? And before you know it, the allurements of the world have become so enticing that we, we can't escape it. We can't escape it. We start trying to build it and fabricate it in the church. I, I preached in churches where, I, I'm telling you, they, they had youth areas that, I preached in one church in particular, I walked into the youth area, and it was all built up just like it was a bar. I mean, high tables and everything, you know, high chairs and uh, a, a little area where somebody was supposed to be the Holy Ghost bartender and going to dispense the new wine to the people. And that's where all the young folks are going to get together and fellowship. Well, you know, if, if, if someone says something like, well, you know, this is what we have to do to, to reach the, the youth, then I would say you're not reaching the youth, they're reaching you. See, the world is reaching you because you, you're transforming the church. It, it, it's like the, the church where the man was dedicating his new building and he wanted to attract the crowd to come out there and see the building. So he got the little girls from the high school cheerleaders and, and he brought them out there, had them out there on the front lawn in their cute little outfits. And they're out there with their pom poms and kicking their legs up and got a train of cars driving by and they're moving slow. You know, they're staring at that building. Yeah, you know, they're staring at that building. Right. And so the little gals out there doing all of their thing. But but why would a man say that? Well, that man said, whatever it takes, it's not whatever it takes. It's whatever he wants. See, it's whatever he wants. When we get our eyes on the world, then the king can tell us how to build our places of worship. And this is why government authority and people in power that are secular or carnal, they love to tell devoted people how they should worship their God, when they should worship their God, whether or not you should be permitted to worship your God. And if you're going to do it, do it this way. Yeah. So state, state religion didn't always work well in the Old Testament, and it certainly doesn't work well in Europe today. You can go to Germany visit any Lutheran church over there, it's just, it's just not worth going to because of how the state controls it. You can read, and if you ever meet anybody, been part of uh, the Three Self Church in uh, China, they'll tell you there's very little gospel preached in the Three Self Church because the communists do not want the blood preached. You're not allowed to preach on the coming of the Lord, and you certainly can't preach that Jesus lived without sin. But if you're going to preach that he's a good philosopher, you want to teach the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount, you're not going to have a problem with that at all. And in many Muslim countries, they still censure what preachers can say. I think it was not too long ago a, a, a minister in Canada was put off a of television. No, it was John Hagee. He was put off a of television in Canada just for reading the Leviticus verses about homosexuality. He didn't even preach. He just read the verses on the broadcast. He was put off. Because the government wants to be able to fabricate the kind of altar that you can put in front of people. And we're just a few days, weeks, months, years away 
from people in this nation probably telling the churches one day, if you're going to have a Bible, here's the kind of Bible you need to have. I'm not going to be able to have a Bible that has these terms in it that's going to be offensive to people. You watch. That's, that, that's right around the corner. Turn to Nehemiah a few books ahead. Let's go to Nehemiah. And, and I want to show you in Nehemiah chapter 13 this in, in a different way. I, I told you that the Ammonites were not supposed to be anywhere around the tabernacle. That was the plan of God. And, and he, he put that in place. But in Nehemiah... While the wall was broken down and the temple hadn't been rebuilt, the people who were running the religion over there, they got close with the pagan unbelievers, and they even let one unbelieving man move into the temple. And he moved into the area where they used to keep the tithes and the offerings. So let's pick it up in verse 4. Nehemiah 13. And before this, Eliashib the priest having the oversight of the chamber of the house of God, was allied unto Tobiah. Now we know from chapter 4, verse 3, Tobiah was an Ammonite. And these were the people doing everything they could to prevent them from building. And now this man has not only a bedroom, he's got a key. He's got access to the temple of God. And this is where he's taking up residence now. So verse 5, and he had prepared... For him, a great chamber where before time they laid the meat offerings, the frankincense and the vessels and the tithes of the corn, the new wine and the oil, which was commanded to be given to the Levites and the singers and the porters and the offerings of the priests. But in all this time was not I at Jerusalem. And then let's come down, look at verse verse number seven. So I came to Jerusalem. And I understood the evil of Elisha, what he did for Tobiah in preparing him a bedroom there. So verse 8, it grieved me sore. So I went and I cast forth all the household stuff. He went to the temple and Nehemiah just started throwing out all of Tobiah's bedroom stuff. He didn't care if he offended him. And he didn't care if Tobiah's friends got angry and said, look, the love of God wouldn't act like that. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Nehemiah was throwing stuff out. I mean, he was showing them the exit sign. And, and got all of that stuff out of there. And then verse 9, then he commanded that they, and they cleansed the chambers. He said, let's fumigate this place. This, we, we got this sinner out of here now. So let's, let's get this cleaned up. And once they did that, and they brought again the vessels in the house of God, it said the people returned to bringing the offerings. Yeah, they started bringing. And you see why they stopped? Because they saw the mixture. See, people, they, people they, they get to thinking, why should I give and support something that's so ungodly? And they just keep their money. But once they saw that there was a man of God there who was not going to compromise, but deal with truth in a way that was godly and wasn't afraid to deal with confrontation, then they all start bringing those offerings back to the temple. And that priest could see how things are supposed to operate. We're, we're seeing this uh, today because... You, you can see how so much of the church has let in so much of the world. Remember the story of the uh, Trojan horse? The Greeks trying to get at Troy. So they said, well, we've got to figure out how to get in there. They said, well, why don't we, you know, we bring all of our fleet, put them out there in the water, and we'll bring a gift. And we'll act like this is a gift, saying basically we want to be friendly with you. 
And that's what they did. They rolled that thing on up there to the gates. And them folks from Troy, they looked out there, saw that. They said, oh, my goodness, look at that. These people, they're so nice. Let's, let's bring that in and see what it is. Well, they rolled it on in to the city. And once they got it in there, they, they didn't know what to do with it. Had no idea. So everybody just eventually stopped looking at it and went to sleep. But in the middle of the night, individuals who were in the belly of that horse, they opened it up from that little contraption they had from within. They came out, opened up the gates of the city. Meanwhile, the fleet had sailed off around the mountain. They came back and they came into that city and destroyed it. Now that, I'm telling you, has been the scheme and the trick of the devil for a long time. Yeah. He, he presents himself to carnal people as though he has wisdom, he has understanding. This will be good for the churches. This will be great for your denomination if you just bring this in. And then people bring that in, then out of the belly of that thing comes some of the worst stuff you've ever seen in your life. And it just starts eating and destroying things, and it's not, not a good thing. So this, this tabernacle then... It, it's God's dwelling place, and it, it, the only thing that matters is what God wants from it. But let's, let's also go to Hebrews 10. Let me show you something else. Hebrews 10, beautiful verse of Scripture, verses 23, said, Let's hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he's faithful that promised. Hebrews 10, 24, Let us consider one another. To provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another so much the more as you see the day approaching. Do you realize that when they lived out in the wilderness and when they came into the promised land finally, that the tabernacle and the temple, that was the center of their family life and culture? The reason they had so many festivals was to tie them to the memories of what God did for them. And the point of all of those memories was so that they would never forget how many times God saved them and helped them. So everything about that tabernacle was connected to the individual family life and the culture. When it came time for the Passover, that's when they sat down and told the story. Said, you know, here's how our father delivered us. Well, it's it's the same with us. For the Christian The church should be the primary thing in his or her life. Our our, our lives should be structured around fellowship with believers, the presence of God with believers. I'm not talking about a building. I'm talking about being around folks that love God, saints that love God, being around people that have a connection with the king. And and when when we do that, there's a continual remembrance of what God has done. Because you'll share with me what God has done for you. I'll share with you what he's done for me. Before you know it, we've got a whole testimony circus going on here. And everybody's talking about how good God is. Yeah. That is what the children of Israel had to do. And that's why the tabernacle was in the center of that. And every family had to bring their own individual Alt offerings up there to the priest because it was the responsibility of the heads of the families to ensure that that family was doing what was right in the name of God. Same with us. So guys, fathers, it's our responsibility. Make sure that, that we're the ones that lead that family. See, and where, and where there's mom and there's no dad, then 
Mom's got to do that. Make sure them little ones know all about all about the king. And where individuals are single, it's your responsibility to be able to say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the king. Yeah, we're going to serve the king. And, and, and your life should be governed around that. There are plenty of people that try to live as far as away, as far away as they can from the church. You probably heard people say, well, look, I, I go to church once a week. I mean, it just seems to me like that's enough. I guess it's enough if that's all you want to <laughs> do church once a week. But, you know, how often do you read the Bible? How often do you pray? How often do you spend time with uh, believers? How often do you listen to Christian music or watch Christian programs? Being a Christian isn't about coming to church once a week. It's about living a life every day. And, and whether you have a building, a congregation or not, you still ought to have your God. I mean, because what, what would you do if a church closed? And, and what would you do if you ended up moving to a location where there weren't a whole lot of Christians and it was just you? You were only maybe two or three other people that loved God. Could you still maintain your faith? Could you still pattern your life around the various things that God has done in your life and share with people, this is how I became a Christian. Because people should know that. Here is how God healed me one time. People should know that. Here's how the Lord filled me with the Holy Spirit. People should know that. Here's how the Lord brought this person into my life. People should know these things. But the only way these things can be known, you have to tell them. Because some of you in here, I know your testimonies and your stories of how you were saved. Some of them are so, so good. I tell them when I travel. Yeah, tell them when I travel. People, they love to hear stories like that. But there, there are a few of you I don't know the stories. And that's why I don't mind when I'm around. I ask, how did you come to saving faith in the king? See? Now, there, there, there are a few people who... Um, you know, like Jennifer, were immaculately conceived. And so you ask, how did you come to know the Lord? She just says, I can't remember a time I didn't know. I didn't love the Lord. But, but for the rest of us who, who, who know something about original sin, if, if, if I say, if, if, if I say to, to, to Amy, tell me how you became a Christian, then we got to get ready for this long, drawn-out story how God rescued her. But, but you know what? Uh, all of our testimonies are important because Jennifer's testimony will reach a whole lot of people that were raised in church all their life just like she was. And there are other people who've come through other circumstances and your story will reach somebody else. That's why I share so many of them when I travel and preach. Because when you cast that net, you've got to cast it wide. You don't know what kind of fish you're going to catch. But there will always be someone is listening for something that lets them know if God did it for that person, he can probably do it for me. He can probably do it for me. Yeah. Okay. Uh, these, these families here <clears throat> that are surrounding the tabernacle, um, it's in that tabernacle. They'll see the cloud. They'll see the fire. But it's also where these families find direction because the responsibility of the priest was to proclaim God's word and to make sure that the sacrifice was of utmost importance to the people. So we come to the house of God because we expect, we expect the preacher to minister the word of God. 
How excited would you be if you came out here and I said for the next several weeks, all we're going to do is read the Reader's Digest? I'd probably be here by myself. Yeah, I'd probably be here by myself. Uh, Most of you are trained enough in the word that you wouldn't even waste your time with something like that. But there are a lot of people. They'd be quite pleased to come every week to listen to something from guideposts. And that would be the only meat that they would receive if you could call it that, you know. But but for us that have have been been trained on the word of God and love the word of God, then our desire is to make sure that our families receive the richness of that word, because that word is what's going to produce in us the life of God. If I want a true manifestation of Christ in my life to the point that I radiate his glory wherever I go. And if I go into a darkened world then people are going to know that I'm there, then I have to know God's word. I think about that African proverb where they. African uh, story they tell where they said this <clears throat> this uh, <clears throat> star had come to this come to the sun and said oh you you got to understand it. I found a place on the other side of the world it's the darkest place on the planet darkest place in the universe and you 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 ought to go see it so that the sun you know S U N the sun went on the other side of the world and he's looking for that dark place never found it never found it. And then when he ran into that, that star again, he said, no, he said, I was over there not too long ago, didn't, didn't find it at all. And so he said, no, you got to go at this time of the day. You go at this time, you'll find it. He went over there that time of the day, never did find the darkness at all. And the whole point of the story is the sun radiated too much light for there ever to be darkness in his presence. You see? So for us as Christians that walk with God, we know we live in a world filled with darkness, but we also know that that darkness has no power over us. No power over us. Just because somebody else has a cloud of depression looming over their head doesn't mean you have to have one over yours. And just because somebody else is sad and oppressed every day of their life, that doesn't mean you have to be that way. If you're going to live with God, you've got to learn to live with joy. You've got to learn to live with happiness. You've got to learn to live in a triumphant way. And the only way to do that is by hearing God's word, which gives you the ability to overcome, who causes you to triumph in all things. Now, let's come over to 1 Corinthians now. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 3, and let's take this quickly in a different direction. 1 Corinthians 3, notice verse 16 and 17. Don't you know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man defiles or destroys the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So in the Old Testament, the temple was a tabernacle. Then it became a building. So Solomon built one. Then there was the restored temple, of course. Then you had Herod's temple. We know one day there's going to be another temple that's going to be built. Revelation talks about the temple of God in heaven. But as of right now, in this particular era that we're living in, your body, through the new birth, became the temple of God. The Spirit of God takes up residence in you. So your body is holy to God. And, and remember how I told you about the holy place under the law when it was the tabernacle and it was the temple, how they treated it like it was unique and it was special. They didn't just let any and everything in it, around it, to control it. They didn't rent out the tabernacle to the Egyptians because they wanted to do something special. Your body <coughs> is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The eyes and the ears are the gates into that world. 
on the inside of you. You've got to be very careful about that. And he says here, the spirit of God dwells in you. If anybody defiles the temple, him God will destroy. So don't let anybody defile your temple. Go to chapter 6 of this same book. Chapter 6. Look at, look at verse 12. Paul says, everything is lawful for me to do, but not everything is expedient. That means it's not profitable. So he said, I can do a whole lot of things, but just because I do it, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be beneficial to my Christian life. <clears throat> you know, there's a reason Pastor Darrell doesn't stand up here with four or five earrings in each earlobe. Uh, aside from the fact that I'm not queer, <laughs> I just have no desire to present myself in that way. You understand? have no desire to present myself in that way. So to, to understand that if, if I had one in my ear, I don't think it's going to send me to hell, but I certainly don't think it's going to help my witness at all. At all. Paul said all things are lawful, but not everything is expedient. Verse 13, he starts talking about food, meats for the belly. He said, look, the belly and the meats are going to both be destroyed. The body isn't for fornication, but for the Lord. And then it says, verse 14, God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his own power. The same body. One day is going to go on the ground. The same body is going to come up. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? God forbid. He said, look, you can't be a Christian and go out here and sleep with somebody who's a and involved with harlotry and whoredoms, and consider that's a that's a good thing, you know. Yeah, I I, I honestly <clears throat> believe that in terms of our uh, relations, physically, sexually, things like that, that there needs to be a, a sharper line demarcation that's given to people so that they'll know shacking up isn't of God. It's not of God. This, this idea that some people have today where they say, look, you know, if, you, if you're going to buy a car, first thing you got to do is test drive it. So you're not going to just go ahead and marry somebody until you've moved in with them. Spend a little time with them, see whether or not you really want to have them or not. Well, that's sin. <laughs> I mean, I don't care how, how, how uh, reasonable it may sound, it's reasonably perverse. Because the plan of God for us is for us to come together and covenant in marriage. That's the plan, you see. That's the plan. So notice what he says then. What? Verse 16. Don't you know that he that joins himself to a harlot is one body? For the two, saith he, shall be one flesh. So physically, when two people get together, there's a union that takes place. Because physically, when two people come together, there's something that happens. Not just emotionally, something spiritual that, that happens when two people come together physical in a relationship. This is what he's talking about. And when he's talking about a harlot, imagine someone who's been with any and everybody. It's, there's something that's been received from a whole lot of people. Now you know as well as I do, the blood of Jesus can bring forgiveness. And the person who's forgiven is just as clean, just as pure as you and me. But the plan of God for us is to the best of our ability, try to preserve our purity. Yeah. When uh, 
young man years ago down in Texas, a good ranching family, fell in love with a girl who had lived out on the street selling herself. You know, as long as that girl was in the church, working in the church, everybody in the church loved her, thought she was wonderful, forgiven of her sins, Christian. But now this young man from that fine ranching family falls in love with her and proposes to her and gets engaged. Now his family is saying to him, now look, now, she's a good gal, and we understand that you like her a whole lot, but you've got to realize we're just two different types of people here. We're ranchers. We've got this kind of reputation in the community. She's been doing this, and we can't have that. Well, that young man told his parents, it didn't matter what you didn't want uh, us to have. I mean, I love her. She loves me. We're getting married. Well, this thing got so bad down there in one of them Texas churches, they had a church trial. Can you imagine that? I mean, one side of the family did not want this young man to marry that girl, and the other side of the church didn't think there was anything wrong with it at all. And so they got together. On a particular day in that church, the girl never did come, but when they're getting ready to open up that trial in that sanctuary, that young man comes walking through that back door, walks up the center aisle, and stands and tells them, you all can do whatever you want to do. I'm just going to call her name Mary. But Mary and I are going to get married no matter what you do. But here's what you need to know. That if, if the blood that cleansed Mary, if she's not clean from all her sins, then none of you in here are clean. See? See the whole point? Everybody believes in forgiveness, but they just don't believe in it for everybody else. They believe in it for them, but they don't believe in it for everybody else. And, and, and so this is why Paul is hammering down on this. He says in verse 18, he says, flee fornication. Every man that a sin does outside the body, he commits fornication. He sins against his own body. Then verse 19, what? Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. That tells me that this body, your body, belongs to him. If you say you love Jesus, he's your savior, your master, your Lord. He purchased you with the blood of his son. You don't have the right to do what you want to do. Go where you want to go. Say what you want to say. What you have the right to do is to be obedient to him. That's it. To be obedient to him. And that is truly what the Christian life is all about. You are not your own. You've been bought with the price. So the the Lord, it doesn't matter how young, how old we are. He could say to anybody in here through a dream, through a prophecy, directly through the scripture. He could say, I want you to leave and I want you to go to Norway. Spend the rest of your life preaching the gospel. You'd have to obey. Because that body belongs to him. He can feed it. He can starve it. He can clothe it. He can have it naked. It can be persecuted on the other side of the planet. Whatever is in the pathway for your life in obedience to him, that is what you have to understand he's called you to. And we don't get to make the decisions. The children of Israel couldn't say to the Lord, we enjoy this tabernacle, but we just think there ought to be a few little modifications. We think we have some ideas that would be a little bit better than what you're doing. And so in our Christian life, The adversary comes to you and he'll say, look, I want to show you something and it's attractive and it's captivating. And if you'll just go after that, it'll enhance your Christian life. 
Folks, I've seen a whole lot of things been detrimental to people's Christian lives. They, they, they thought in the beginning it was spiritual, but led to a shipwrecked faith. Yeah. I've seen people fall in love with folks, and they say, oh, my goodness, I, I think I can change him. Really? You must believe you're God. You can't, you can't change, change anybody. But the only thing you can do is make sure you, you walk with God. I've seen people, they, they, they go here, they go there. They say, well, I hadn't really thought about it, Pastor. Don't know where I'm going to go to church if, if we go to that particular place. Well, I say, you need to think about that. Yeah, you need to think about that. Because having a, a good place to go and having somebody to preach to you, teach you, that, that's an important thing. Have somebody to model for you. So where are you going to go? I'm, I'm not sure. What kind of church is it going to be? I said, well, you need to find a spirit-filled one. Find one where Christ can be manifested, where there's not going to be any suppression of the power of God. You want Christ's life to, to be attractive and, and something that will just come through you and flow like a river. Then you ought to find a place like that. See, otherwise, you, you, you can't have that. But to walk with him, folks, oh, it's a glorious thing. Oh, we're the dwelling place of God, and he happily lives inside of us. You believe that? You think, you think God's happy to live inside of you? Huh? Some of you don't look too, too assured about that. You, you, you're not really pleased. Uh, you know, I know it, uh, there are things we can do that grieves God, but I hope God doesn't look upon anybody here in the room and think about us the way he thought about Noah's generation. He says, you know, it just really saddens me that I redeemed this man after all. Because he acts worse than he did when he came to know the Lord. No, that's not the plan of God. True redemption lifts us and brings us into the presence of God. All right, let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that the tabernacle provides so many pictures of what it means for us to walk with you. Help us, God, to live a life that's consecrated. Help us to be vessels on which your glory can rest. Father, we pray that there would be manifestations of your spirit in our Christian lives. Talk to us in the middle of the night. Talk to us throughout the day. Father, let that fire burn. I pray, oh God, that people would know when we come into the room that there is a presence about us. and People know that God lives in that vessel. We love you and praise you in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, amen, amen. <clears throat>